largest cities in Europe, the centers of learning and intellectual exchange, and some of the greatest palaces that still exist to this day. It was the place more than any other where classical knowledge passed from the Arabs into Europe. For the Abbasid caliphs who sat in Baghdad, which they saw as the great world capital, the rivalry of this breakaway province would be a constant sore spot. Last week, we talked about how Iberia, today's Spain and Portugal, was captured by the Muslims. This week, we're going to look at how it became a state separate from the great Abbasid Caliphate. So please stay with us. Although we know today, with the benefit of history, that Spain and much of North Africa would stay out of Abbasid control and would effectively be separate kingdoms from the Abbasid Caliphate, that was not evident at the beginning. The Abbasids, who had overthrown the Umayyad dynasty, assumed that they would rule everything the Umayyads once did. And of course they had the belief, like the Umayyads, that Dar al-Islam would continue to spread. So they were not about to let a breakaway province get out of their hands, especially not one which had come to be ruled by the hated dynasty they had overthrown, the Umayyads. Well, if you remember a ways back, we talked about al-Mansur, who was the second Abbasid caliph, but is really considered the founder of the dynasty. He was the one who established the great capital of Baghdad, so he was going to get back Muslim Spain and continue to make his empire grow. He did the natural thing a great emperor would do. He sent an army to reconquer Iberia, and it had about 7,000 soldiers. That doesn't sound like much by today's standards, but we figure it was about 10 times what the Umayyad ruler of Spain, who if you remember was Abdurrahman, could gather in one place. So they landed in what is today modern-day Portugal, and they quickly moved inland and laid siege to one of the Umayyad strongholds at Carmona, where they trapped a fairly large Umayyad force. Well, Abdurrahman, who was the leader, realized his supplies were short, he had very few men, and that he would soon be starved out. Now, if you remember from our previous episode, Abdurrahman had quite a dramatic life. He was chased all over Africa before he finally landed in Iberia and took it over for himself. Well, this episode in his life is going to be no less dramatic. He is said to have gathered his 700 fighters and told them that they would have to fight to the death. To underscore the point, he started a fire and burned his scabbard meaning that his sword would never be sheathed again until he died. Then he opened the gates and let the Abbasid troops into the city. 
Well, apparently they thought that this was a surrender, so they went in through the gates, where they were then ambushed and killed. But Abdurrahman was not done with the drama. He cut off the heads of these soldiers and sent them back to the Khalif in Baghdad. Now, although Al-Mansur would hate Abdurrahman for this, he at least had respect for him and realized he was a great warrior and a bold leader, and so he had everyone call him Saqar al-Quraysh, which means the falcon of the Quraysh. And of course, the Quraysh is the tribe of the Prophet. Now, although Al-Mansur would never have guessed, the Abbasids would never come to rule Spain again. It would remain an Umayyad kingdom basically as long as the Abbasids and the Muslim Empire would exist. So he probably thought he was paying tribute to this bold leader who handed him a defeat and that eventually he would go back and have the guy killed. Well, on the other hand, Abdurrahman was not done with the Abbasids either. They considered him the last remnant of the old regime to be crushed. But he considered them rebels who had massacred his family and taken his empire away from him. So while they had visions of crushing him, he had visions of taking the fight back to Baghdad and crushing the Abbasids. In any case, that was not to be. It might have seemed to them like one of them was going to win out and rule this united Muslim empire. But instead, Al-Andalus would be a nest of rebellions, but it would be separate from the Abbasid Empire. That does not mean it would be easy for Abdul Rahman to control. He ruled for 30 years, but he was constantly putting down rebellions of all types. Now, this sounds pretty familiar. By this point, you're probably sick of hearing about rebellions and uprisings and revolutions, but this is kind of the way things were. Although the Muslim empire was strong, and definitely strong against its enemies, internally there were a lot of people competing for power. So one of the places that Abdul Rahman had a very hard time subduing was the north of the country in the mountains that are close to the border with the Christians. And this, of course, is where modern-day Spain uh, borders on France. And you would expect that this would be a tough place uh, to control. The city of Zaragoza, which, of course, is a famous city today, was a particular holdout. Uh, it's a site of probably the most famous university in Spain today. But in 778, the Muslim ruler of Zaragoza, allied with a Frankish Christian leader, whose name happened to be Charlemagne, to oppose Abdurrahman. Now this pattern is going to be quite familiar. So yes, there was a religious war going on between Muslims and Christians, but more often than not, there was a lot of political struggles of all kinds of people allying with anyone they could for power. So you would find one coalition that had Muslims and Christians on one side fighting another coalition that had a different group of Muslims and Christians on the other side. And that's what we had in this case. Well, 22 years later, on a famous Christmas day in the year 800, Charlemagne would be crowned the Holy Roman Empire, and he would establish the first real European empire since the fall of Rome. That date is usually given to mark the beginning of, quote, modern Europe and the end of the barbarian era. Although, of course, it's really just one event in a long transformation. 
Anyway, that was decades off from 778, and at this time, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, just seemed like another local warlord to be used in a tool in an inter-Muslim conflict. After all, they were the ones who had been expanding. Well, in any case, that whole scheme fell apart for a lot of complicated reasons because these alliances were extremely complicated about who was going to do what for whom and how everyone was going to get paid, and they could shift very quickly. So eventually Charles saw that he had better fortunes back up north in France, and he crossed the Pyrenees Mountains and went back home. Now, on his way back, his forces were ambushed by Basque rebels in an early installment of what's going to be a very long, ongoing conflict. The famous Chanson de Roland, which is one of the most famous medieval French literary works, is about that particular battle where they're ambushed. As we'll see, a lot of famous medieval European cultural references are related to the struggles ongoing in Spain at this time when it was controlled by the Muslims and they were fighting against Christians. I mean, we've already talked about why Columbus sailed in 1492 and not earlier. And I think this is just important to remember because we tend to study European history. I know that's what I took in school. You took U.S. history and then you took European history and all these great events were going on. There was Charlemagne, there was Columbus, and so forth. Uh, but we never heard anything about the Muslims and what influence they had on it. And in fact, uh, those whole developments at that time were very much tied to what was going on with the Muslims, particularly in Spain. So in any case, Zaragoza would eventually fall to Abdul Rahman after a lot of maneuvering and fighting. But you can see why, with all this going on, in dealing with this sort of situation in places all over Spain, he never made it to conquer Baghdad. In fact, he never got close to that. Abdurrahman had enough enemies of his own to deal with right there in Spain. And so, in that case, the Jews and the Christians who worked with him and lived under his territory were treated especially well. I mean, he had a lot of external enemies. He didn't need more internally. As long as they paid the Jizya tax, they were given great freedom. Now, it's said that the Jizya tax in Spain at the time was actually less than the mandatory taxes that the Muslims paid. Now, this is significant because the Jizya had technically always been justified on the basis that Christians and Jews, unlike Muslims, didn't serve in the army. However, in Spain, they were allowed to serve in the army, and many did. They saw it as they were serving in the army of Abdurrahman, a man they liked and respected, and whose kingdom they liked being a part of. And so they were part of his army, and in that case, they didn't have to pay the Jizya tax. So it was a fairly good deal. And as we've said before, many Jews and Christians rose to high positions in the government, and they had uh, positions of respect throughout the local governments. So it was a fairly good situation living under his rule. Well, a ruler needs a capital, and Abdurrahman, who wanted to compete with Baghdad, would have a great capital. He established his in the city of Cordoba, which had been a provincial capital since the conquest in 716. But it, before that, it was an ancient city, and the ruins actually go back to prehistoric times. It was a Roman capital as well, and it's located about two-thirds of the way down to the south in central Spain today. 
So it was there, and it was already a capital, but the Umayyads greatly expanded on it, and it grew to be one of the largest cities in the world, with 200,000 people, which in the 9th century was huge. It would eventually surpass Constantinople to be the largest city in Europe. And more than any other city, Cordoba would be the rival to Baghdad in terms of culture and science. It's really the key city uh, for Muslim Spain. Now, unlike a lot of cities that we discussed in the conquest that made a truce with the Muslims, Cordoba did not. And they actually fought, and they were taken by force. So a lot of their churches had been destroyed in the initial conquest. Abdurrahman, who you know, wanted to make things peaceful, allowed the Christians to rebuild most of these. Now, there was the famous Church of St. Vincent, which was being used as a divided half-mosque, half-church, this was a prime location that Abdurrahman wanted to build his great mosque on. And he wanted this great mosque to rival the great mosque of, you guessed it, Baghdad. So what he did was he bought out the Christian half. So when we think about this in terms of interfaith relations, compared to the barbarian invasions that brought in the Vandals and the Visigoths to Iberia, here we have someone uh, who wants to have the half of a building that's being used as a Christian church, and he's the Muslim ruler, and so he pays them for it and lets them build one somewhere else so that he can build a, his own uh, mosque on the spot. So it's fairly civilized and a very legal and organized treatment. Well, on that spot would be built the Great Mosque of Cordoba, or the Mesquita in Spain, of course, in my very bad Spanish, uh, which is today a UN World Heritage Site, and it's one of the greatest examples of Islamic architecture in the world standing today. In fact, if you look up Islamic architecture, you're very likely to see a picture of particularly the hall with the columns and arches. There are striped arches, uh, a huge amount of them, and this is the most famous thing from this mosque in Cordoba. But what is happening here is an Iberian-Islamic fusion is developing that would characterize Spanish architecture at that time and even to this day. And it becomes a unique style. It's distinct from anywhere else in the Muslim world. And as I've said so many times, we know what happens to Baghdad and those great cities. The Mongols get in there and they destroy everything, which is not what happens in Europe. And so some of the greatest examples of Islamic architecture in the world today Today are in Europe, in Spain, in a uh, Catholic Christian country. And anyway, it becomes part of the Spanish culture. Now, the area in which Cordoba was located, in which Abdurrahman uh, built his uh, emirate, was great agricultural land. Even today, it still is. Uh, and this, the natural abundance of the land, was quickly paired with some advancing agricultural techniques, some of which were brought in from the east, brought from as far away as China and India, some of which were developed right there into something that historians refer to as the Great Arab Agricultural Revolution. 
Now, it was not called that until the 1800s when uh, historians decided to call it that. But for historians of agriculture, this is one of the great jumps, like the Green Revolution, um, that really expanded the capacity of the land to produce agriculture. And when you can produce a great agricultural surplus, that means you can support a much larger population. That means you can make a lot more money and you can use that to build a lot more. And because you have a surplus that you're growing, you can afford for people to work in other areas. And so this is one of the ways that great civilizations are able to invest in art and architecture and all the, the fancy stuff that we remember. Now, crops from as far east as China were imported into El Andalus. Crops like citrus fruits, sugar, rice from India. Uh, the water wheels from Egypt were imported, which were very important for irrigation. And the Arabs made great strides in irrigation and engineering uh, irrigation systems. And because of this development, and all of these put together, they were able to extend the growing seasons, extend the area of land which was fertile, and this greatly changed the distribution of population. And of course, uh, it made them very important in trade. Well, Abdurrahman died in the year 788, uh, but by that time he had established a stable, prosperous emirate, an Umayyad emirate in Al-Andalus. Uh, he never got to take over Baghdad and restore the Umayyad dynasty, but we still now today recognize him as the founder of another great dynasty. It's not known whether he actually used the title Khalif, although he definitely believed he was the legitimate Khalif of all Muslims. But he and his successors would be known as emirs, and an, an emir in Arabic is basically a prince. It's like one step down from a king or from a caliph. And of course, it's used today in places like the United Arab Emirates. The kingdom was known as the Emirate of Cordoba. But later on, a few centuries later, uh, they got bold enough to declare themselves a caliphate, and we would have two rival caliphates. Well, as part of the order that Abdurrahman put in place, he assured a successful transition of power to his son Hisham. And we have talked much in the past about how difficult transitions are in the Muslim world. They don't have the tradition of primogeniture, that is, passing it directly on to the oldest son. So as the great historian Hugh Kennedy has said, uh, the successor of most Arab or Muslim leaders is usually civil war. But in this case, Abdurrahman had such a firm grip on power, he was able to ensure that his son Hisham would take power. Hisham would only last eight years in power, and he died at the age of 38. But his reign would be significant, particularly for why Islam did not expand further into Europe. And this is a question that is often debated. I mean, we've talked about how Islam was on a great spree of conquest, how they went through Spain, how they actually made it into France and were defeated uh, back 60 years prior by Charles Martel, but why didn't they ever take up the conquest again? You know, we have this concept of Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb. Why didn't they move further into Europe? Well, 
As we've mentioned, Charlemagne was a growing power in France, and he had expanded into northern Spain. Another threat in northern Spain on the other side was the kingdom of Astoria, and they're in northeastern Spain. These were Christians who had fled from the initial conquests, but were never conquered themselves, so they set up their own uh, kingdoms in northeastern Spain. So if you imagine the map of Spain for a moment, in the northeast corner we have the Astorians. In the northwest, which is where Spain borders France, you have the expanding Frankish state and Charlemagne, who's making an, another great empire for himself. Well, Hisham, following in his father's footsteps, decides to go after both of these. And he declares this a jihad, to make this clear that this is a holy war for Muslims, not just some political squabble in which you can choose sides. And he did fairly well, but several major fortresses in southern France held out against Hisham's attacks. His forces defeated a major Frankish army at Carcassonne. Now that city is famous today as the ultimate medieval fortress. And I mean, if you've seen pictures of it, it really looks like that. So that sounds impressive, but um, there were some Roman fortifications still there. But most of the great fortifications that we see today in Carcassonne were not there at the time that Hisham defeated it. So um, he can't really take credit for that. But what is significant is what happens after. And that is Hisham did not decide to continue his campaign into France. Now, he got a tremendous amount of loot from the victory, and he used that to expand the great mosque of Cordoba. But then he returned to Spain. Now, this marks something of a turning point, or at least it confirmed the major turning point that the Battle of Tours uh, would hold in history. We're told Charles Martel defeated the Muslims, and they never went any further. Well, in a sense, that's kind of true, but then we have Hisham taking the battle into France, and he wins, but he turns to go back to Spain, and so it basically cements the fact that, yeah, there's not going to be a uh, continuing series of conquests. A similar thing happens in the northeast corner against the Astorians. Hisham's forces scored several major victories, and they looted a lot of places, and this is kind of how you made money uh, by waging wars, and this is how you paid your troops. But they returned back to their territory. And so it seems like Hisham was more interested in keeping control of Al-Andalus and stamping down any threats rather than expanding the conquest. So although he called it a jihad, it really didn't go any further. He may have had dreams of doing more later in the future, but as we said, he died at a very young age. In fact, he died in 796. And as we've seen several times, there were no established rules of succession, and so the male relatives fought for power. Abdurrahman had been in charge for 30 years, and he could basically cement the succession. Uh, Hisham didn't, and... He probably didn't expect to be in this situation so soon. In any case, his son al-Hakam would become the emir, but not before defeating two of his uncles. And one of his uncles actually took refuge with Charlemagne in France and tried to convince Charlemagne to go back and help him reconquer Spain. Of course, Charlemagne was uh, busy in Europe. But you get the idea of how political this is, much more than it is religious. 
Well, al-Hakam would prove to be a rather tough and brutal ruler. And one of his favorite thing was crucifying his opponents and having their heads displayed on pikes on the roads leading into Cordoba, just so you got the message if you were coming in there. At one point, uh, he had some troubles with his noblemen, and so they were invited to a banquet, and they all ended up as heads lining the roadway. But that's not his biggest display of heads. One incident provided 300 heads along the roadway. So al-Hakam may have scared a whole lot of people, but not so much that they stopped rebelling. He would rule for 26 years, but he would face constant rebellions. In any case, he won and defeated most of them, and he really cemented the power of Cordoba over all of Al-Andalus and the permanence of the Umayyad Emirate there. He'd really stopped thinking about going back to take over Baghdad, uh, but it didn't look like the Umayyads were going to fall in Spain anytime soon. is one of the great flourishings of the arts and of sciences. And this begins uh, shortly after al-Hakam's time. Uh, he and his father were largely concentrating on trying to maintain power, trying to put down rebellions, and uh, their greatest contribution was building the great mosque of Cordoba. But things begin to flourish under Abdurrahman II, who was al-Hakam's son, and thus the great-grandson of Abdurrahman I. Now, it's just a spoiler alert here. I will tell you that the greatest ruler of al-Andalus would be Abdurrahman III. So this is an easy way to keep track of the history. Just remember the Abdurrahmans, one, two, and three. Okay, uh, One is the founder, and the second is the one we're going to talk about now, who helps the arts to flourish, but the, really the greatest one is coming later. So that's the name to remember. I'm talking about Al-Andalus. Well, Abdurrahman's reign of 30 years was a period of nearly constant war. And you can almost guess that by now. We're seeing the same pattern over and over again. And one of his biggest troublemakers was the Astorian king Alfonso, who tried to advance south into Al-Andalus. Remember the Astorians, they're up in the northeastern uh, corner. And the name Alfonso, this uh, actually is the name of several kings in Spain who will, over the 700 years, will be uh, major enemies of the Muslim state there. But Abdurrahman II managed to stop him on some uh, several occasions, and some historians date the uh, beginning of the so-called Reconquista to Alfonso because he was trying to attack south and drive the Muslims out. But that's really, that's really a stretch. In fact, is these wars were going on constantly. Uh, the fact that Christian campaigns southward were going on from the beginning, almost from the founding of Al-Andalus, and eventually ended up with the last Muslims leaving by boat, 
that kind of supports the idea of looking at the whole thing of an ongoing Reconquista. But the actual sustained campaigns, when they were making ground and driving the Muslims out, uh, begins centuries later. Well, if Abdul Rahman didn't have enough threats to deal with, in the year 844, a force of Vikings landed and captured the city of Sevilla, and they made it all the way to Cordoba. Now, of course, we associate the Vikings with the cold north, but they actually did make it down to the Mediterranean and raided within the Mediterranean as well. So he had to deal with them also. Well, the Vikings would not last near as long in Spain as they did in England or Ireland or the other places they went to. Abdul Rahman would manage to drive them out. But what this did was this alerted him to the significance of the sea threat. And when you think about Iberia, it's pretty much surrounded by sea almost everywhere. So he established a naval fleet to protect the coast. Now, what is really significant about Abdul Rahman II? It's not the constant warfare. I mean, you kind of expected that by now. But he established El Andalus as a major intellectual center. Now, like his predecessors, he expanded the Great Mosque of Cordoba. That was a standard thing. It would be expanded gradually over a long period of time. But by this time, the emirate had received such status that even the Byzantine emperor over in Constantinople sent gifts of mosaics and artisans to work on the mosque of Cordoba. So it shows you the status that they were achieving. be surprised at all to hear that Abdul Rahman II was determined to make his city rival Baghdad. So he embarked on an ambitious building program of libraries, hospitals, and mosques. And of course, he tried to lure the best scholars and artists from Baghdad by offering them lavish gifts to come out to Cordoba. But one of his best coups was landing the famous Abbasid musician Ziryab. Now this name means blackbird in Persian. And one of the reasons is because he was known for his dark skin. And like many great artists and scientists, we don't know what his actual ethnicity was or where he came from. And this is a testament to the fact that you could be a slave or you could be very poor or from humble origins. But if you had talent, you would get noticed and you could go places. He is known in Spanish culture as Pajaro Negro, which means the same thing in Spanish. Now, I have discovered since the last episode that many of my Spanish friends are listening, so let me be very careful to say nice things about Spanish here. Uh, we have a rivalry, a very friendly rivalry, let me just say that, about who these great figures actually belong to. Are they Arab figures? Are they Spanish figures? And so it's significant that this man who was probably of African origin, and therefore probably a slave somewhere in his lineage, certainly not of Bedouin Arab origin. He was immersed enough in Persian culture that he had a Persian nickname, left such a lasting impression on the musical culture of Spain that he has been immortalized in Spanish culture as well, 
but we consider him a great Arab musician. And this shows how cosmopolitan uh, this was. So can he be considered a great figure in Spanish history? Yes. In Arab history, yes, absolutely, in Persian and so forth. And the reason, though, that we claim him as an Arab figure is because of the language he worked in. And this shows how important language is as a determinant of identity. He was not an ethnic Arab, uh, but he worked and actually excelled in writing in Arabic. And that's really the only thing Arab about the guy. And that's true of a lot of figures we're going to talk about throughout this series who become famous Arab scholars. Many of them are coming from Uzbekistan, they're coming from Spain, they're coming from North Africa. What makes them, quote, Arab? It's the language. And so this is one of the great achievements when the Umayyad dynasty made Arabic the official language of everything in the empire, not just the religion they created what we now think of as the Arab world. And this, of course, is the legacy that Abdurrahman adopts. He is an Umayyad, and he remembers this is the great achievement of his ancestors. So why would anyone want to claim Ziryab anyway, whose name means blackbird? Well, he is really the exemplar of the Mu'adab, and the Mu'adab is the person who is sophisticated or cultured. And uh, of course, adab, which is translated to mean literature nowadays, refers to the refinement and the, the bearing and the customs of a person with culture. And a person who is mu'adab is that person. Well, in many ways, to a large degree, uh, ziryab is responsible for the picture we have of what a mu'adab should be. I mean, a few centuries later, someone like him in Europe would have been called a Renaissance man. Now, although he was a great musician, and he influenced the classical styles of music in Spain and North Africa, it's hard for us to judge how good he was and exactly what he did for music, because the Arabs didn't have musical notation like the kind we have today, which developed in Europe. And of course, there was no way of recording. So we don't know what any of his music actually sounded like. We have stuff that people claim this is what he sang, but we don't really know if it is. Uh, we do know that he changed the classic Arab musical instrument, which is the oud. And, of course, the oud is what gives us the word lut. I mean, if you say it very fast, al-oud, lut, al-oud, uh, that's where we get it from. And the, the oud is very similar to a lut. And this certainly led to the development of the guitar. Now, he changed it. Ziryab added a fifth pair of strings. Now, an oud is, is very hard to play. It's like a 12-string guitar is today, which means it has six pairs of strings, you know, two strings very close to each other, where you press both strings at the same time, unlike a regular six-string guitar that the rest of us play, where you just press one string at a time. Um, so with each note, instead of striking, you know, just one string and getting one note, every time you strike a note, you're getting two very close notes but with a slight difference between them, and this gives a much richer sound. Well, Ziryab added a fifth pair of strings to this, so you went from having eight that you had to pay, play to having ten. Now, if this instrument sounds hard to play, that's why I don't have one. It's very hard to play. Uh, now, you can hear the playing of the oud, 
uh, on YouTube very easily because there are many recordings of it. But if you do, what you'll notice is uh, the good oud players, they tend to play very elaborate uh, string picking and very fast string picking. So, and this is what you're known for, how elaborate and difficult a melody you can play. Well, see what Zeryab is doing. He's increasing the number of strings by 25%. So you imagine if he did that, he was looking to make some pretty complex melodies. Uh, an analogy here is today there are banjos that come in two varieties, a four-string and a five-string variety. The four-string is the easier one for beginners, uh, but the fancy picking that you hear in all the bluegrass music requires a five-string banjo. So it's a similar thing here, but imagine instead of five strings, you have five sets of double strings. In any case, I have succeeded here in discussing bluegrass music in a podcast about Muslim Spain. So that has to be an accomplishment. Okay, besides music, though, Ziryab had a huge impact on manners. He is referred to as a kind of minister of culture, which is not an actual position, but it reflects the fact that he was very close to the emir, and what he suggested in terms of manners quickly became adopted. Remember how in polite Arab Muslim culture at this time, rulers would have a diwan, or they'd have a mejlis, which is a group of people who would gather around them, sort of their social circle, and they would have entertainment, and they would share ideas. But of course, the higher status you were, the more important your social circle was. So we can imagine the emir's social circle is the one everyone wanted to emulate, their style and their fashion. I imagine something like this must have happened in our culture when somebody accidentally ripped their jeans and they happened to be an important person. So the idea of having ripped up jeans became a status symbol and now you have to pay like $80 to get jeans that have been torn apart by someone. Probably a similar thing happened here. Well, Zirya was a guy who loved this. He was so close to the emir that what he did became the standard, and he influenced the manners of polite society. Now imagine before this, we had the Goths, and eating had basically been according to the customs of the Goths, which you can imagine is a very messy, nasty affair. Ziryab introduces tablecloths, he introduces a number of utensils, which you use for different things. He replaces metal cups with crystal glassware. You can imagine if the Goths had crystal glassware, it would have been smashed in the first uh, night. And he introduces table manners of how you're supposed to eat, you know, what fork you're supposed to use. A very different environment from what went on before. He's also said to have started the idea of having a meal with multiple courses, rather than sort of the free-for-all that the Goths had where you just piled all the food on the table and went for it. So the idea of having the soup, and then the salad, and then the entree. And this is one of the things that's often said. If you eat a meal with courses today, you owe it to Ziryab. Any cases, he brought in a lot of recipes. He was known to be a great cook. Some came from Asia, from China, from India. Of course, he brought in the ones that were popular in Baghdad. So if they were eating some kind of pigeon, we had to eat it here in Al-Andalus. And many of them he made up himself. And as in uh, 
the finest traditions of the food channel today, he not only paid attention to fine foods and spices, but was also big on presentation. You know, how you plate your food and how it looks. So he could have been on chopped. Well, a man like this wouldn't stop at just eating manners. He was very big in terms of hygiene and dress. Now, Ziryab is said to have introduced so much stuff, it, it really seems like some of it must have been just attributed to him. But he is said to have introduced toothpaste. He's said to have brought perfumes from Asia. He's said to have popularized shaving. You know, before that, you just let your beard grow as long as it grew. And invented different hairstyles for men and women. He introduced the idea of summer and winter fashions. And he even set the exact dates from which you change from summer clothes over to winter clothes or springtime clothes. In the summer, you were supposed to wear white linens, which is still a custom today. In the winter, you wore furs. In springtime, you wore bright colors. Well, because he was so close to the emir and basically responsible for the emir's social circle, he was responsible for bringing in a lot of prominent philosophers, astrologers, scientists, and poets. Now, it's, of course, important for the ruler to host these kind of gatherings, but the emir wants to have the very best. He's going to have the best philosophers and so forth. Well, Ziryab was basically the talent scout. He was the who's who of Cordoba society. And the goal always was to compete with Baghdad. And he did a lot to make Cordoba the actual rival of that city. When we think of the great cities of the time, we think of Baghdad, but then you think of Cordoba as the second. Well, if this sounds like a really nice life, and a guy got to sit around talking about tablecloths and spices and all that, we should not forget that court culture was extremely dangerous, and these rivalries could be fatal. I mean, someone who is that close to the emir uh, is not only influencing how the emir eats and how he holds his soup spoon. You can also influence him to make or break deals and help out your friends or curse your enemies. And other people want that influence, and so things could get really nasty. I mean, the reason that Ziryab left Baghdad in the first place was that he impressed the great caliph Harun al-Rashid so much with his music that his teacher who at the time was the most famous musician of Baghdad, threatened to kill him if he didn't leave. Okay, so let's talk about some pretty bitter rivalries. Well, like the Umayyads, Ziryab fled to Al-Andalus and he found a bright future there. But people were always trying to backstab him and get rid of him as well. But this was, at any case, a great time for people with talent to get ahead. They said you could start as a slave, and you could get ahead, whether it be in the military, in music, in philosophy, if you had the talent. And this is because the society was rich and prosperous and very efficient. They had a lot of surplus, and they could afford to promote people with all kinds of different arts and skills. Well, Ziryab not only benefited from that system, he helped to perpetuate it. Now, he made a lot of money. 
And, of course, he used it for fancy living, but he used a lot of it to found music schools and beauty schools and schools of manor. He used a lot of it to fund the work of scientists and artists, and he was responsible for a lot of those people getting ahead. I mean, if he had been alive today, he would have been the kind of guy who finds uh, scholarships in college for people of talent. And he was not only interested in rich students, but he particularly went out and found poor students who had great talent and gave them the opportunity to study and gain fame like he had done. And he was helping Abdurrahman II to make Cordoba to become the rival of Baghdad. But this was just the beginning. Al-Andalus was growing as a great cultural center to rival the greatest cities of the world and of history. And in the long run, it would really be a partner with Baghdad. And so in the future, we're going to talk some more about how this great portion of the Muslim world grows and flourishes and why it begins to decline, but particularly the great influence and relationship it has with Christian Europe. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Thank you again for your kind attention. We look forward to seeing you in the future. Shukran Jazeelin wa ma salam.